Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The 2014 LitFest author reading series featured nationally known and award-winning authors, as well as Lighthouse's own William Haywood Henderson. In this first of two readings, authors Mark Doty, Robin Hemley, and William Haywood Henderson read published and unpublished pieces, a sneak peek into upcoming work by these writers. Welcome to tonight's reading. I'm very excited. These are three tremendous authors and super handsome human beings. Don't you think? I, yeah, it's, it's really true. Um, uh, my name is Mike Henry, in case you don't know me. Can you hear me in the back? Is this okay? Yeah? All right, good. I'm the executive director here at Lighthouse. I want to thank you for being here. Um, the order is going to be, um, let's see, Robin Hemley will read first. William Haywood Henderson, because he has the longest name, is going to read second. Yes. And then um, we're going to bring it on home with Mark Doty. So that, sound, that sounds like a good, I'd like that. You know, that's, that's good. Ring trip. Let's give a big hand for all three. And first off is Robin. Thanks very much. Um, can you all hear me? Okay. And um, thanks, Mike and Andrea and Kate and everyone else uh, and all the people in my uh, class. Um, since we were given about uh, 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes each, I, I don't have a lot of short-form stuff, but I do have some. I write um, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, um, but I thought I'd read a couple of poems and then uh, a short piece that was in uh, the Paris Review online, an essay. Um, I did write, as Mike mentioned, I wrote a book uh, called Do-Over, and in Do-Over, it was kind of a fun project for me. I first had this idea uh, that I pitched to New York Magazine where I would go back to my summer camp and uh, bunk with a bunch of 10-year-olds because I was a really bad camper the first time, so I thought I needed to try it again. So I did, um, so it was so much fun and so enlightening uh, to go back to these sites of failure and embarrassment. Um, and I always believe in making a big fool of myself um, that I decided to do 10 of these. And I went uh, back to kindergarten because I had a very bad kindergarten experience, believe it or not. And I, um, uh, I was also in a play called The Littlest Angel where I was the heavenly messenger when I was seven. And I just had to go out on stage and deliver one line and the box to the uh, littlest angel. And I got out on stage and I froze. And I threw the box at the kid. <laughs> and I said, here's your stupid box. And I, ra- <laughs> and I ran off stage. And I found a group in uh, Marietta, Georgia, putting on the play again. And they let me reprise my role. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm not, so I did 10 of those, and I'm not going to read from that tonight. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, you can, it's available. <laughs> um, instead, I'm going to read. So when you finish a book, sometimes you, um, sir, you're, you're desperate for a new book. You're casting about for something else, and it, it's this kind of strange anxiety. And since I had done this book, uh, that I call it immersion memoir, like immersion journalism, but going out and doing something in the world that reflects on your life. But other people call it uh, uh, stunt journalism. And so I decided to have a little fun with myself uh, and my need to try to do something else. So I wrote a poem 
uh, called Rejected Book Ideas. For a year, I'll wear one sock inside out. For a year, I'll only eat bib lettuce. For a year, I'll pretend I'm invisible. I'll speak with a fake French accent for a year, the year of speaking with a fake French accent. I will pee sitting down for a month, the month of peeing sitting down. I propose becoming a serial killer for a year. For each murder, I'll use a different instrument of death, starting with an imitation of Lizzie Borden's axe murder of her parents. My parents are dead already, but I'll substitute the parents of my editor or agent. I will be a prostitute for a fortnight. I will lie down with as many men and women as possible during that time, and I will tell their untold stories. The working title will be The John Voice Project. I won't look for trouble, but if I find it, I'll be ready. I will call this book Ready for Anything, or Come What May, which do you prefer? I will have my hair cut, one hair at a time, by a thousand hairstylists around the world. Naturally, we must call the book From Hair to Eternity. And each book sold will come with a souvenir hair. I will travel around the world in a baby carriage. No one has done that yet. Or none of these. I might just write a book by hand on moth wings. This will be my memoir, but you will need to bend close as I write, or I will be lost to you forever. So that's that. Thanks. Um, I'm going to read... Um, so one thing I love, um, I love the introductions that poets make to their poems, and I've become a real uh, aficionado of introductions. And of course, sometimes the introductions are longer and occasionally more interesting than the poem. Um, and, and, um, and so I've started a series of uh, poems that are introductions to poems that don't exist. Um, so uh, this one is called... Uh, introduction to the poem about feeling foolish in front of Yehuda Amachai. Oh, I also love it how poets will always say, I only have two more poems. It's, you just listen. You'll, the people always do that. They say, I only have two more poems. And I wish as a prose writer I could do that, say I only have two more paragraphs, uh, or just change things up the way poets can. I only have two more poems. I want to thank you for coming out tonight and listening to them. This one is from my series of poems about feeling foolish in front of Yehuda Amachai. I was having breakfast with Yehuda Amachai. Don't ask me how, if I told you it would take all evening, and I'd use up my time, and then we wouldn't get to the poem about feeling foolish in front of Yehuda Amachai. How am I doing on time? Anyway... I had been invited to speak at this Jewish festival in Asheville, even though I don't consider myself a Jewish writer. The poem, by the way, by the way is a renga, of the type perfected by the poet Basho in the 17th century. It's a collaborative form of poetry, but in this case I wrote it by myself. <laughs> and imagine that Yehuda Amakai and I collaborated on it though I feel he definitely would not have done so because he didn't seem to care for me, as will become apparent in this poem. Because I want to read two more. 
after the poem about feeling foolish in front of Yehuda Amakai, which I wasn't counting when I said I only had two more. I meant two more after Yehuda Amakai, who, by the way, wrote wonderful poetry. I would especially recommend his poem, A Man in His Life. A man doesn't have time in his life to have time for everything, Amakai writes. How am I doing on time? Do I have a few more minutes? Good. Which is a really great poem, really great. We were having breakfast, me, my friend Rick, and Yehuda Amakai, and I said, do you remember when you visited Roslyn, Washington with my friend David? Because David had said, ask him if he remembers going to Roslyn with me. <laughs> Yehuda Amakai looked at me sharply and said, of course I remember, as though I had accused him of senility. When I asked him to sign a book, he wrote in it, with memories of breakfast. And so I felt foolish. And this is one of the series of poems about that feeling. I'll begin it now. So, last... So I spent a lot of time uh, in the Philippines. I've written about the Philippines a lot. Um, uh, I just was there at a writers' festival a couple, a few weeks ago, and um, my wife is Filipino, and um, I'm actually writing a book, finishing a novel that's set in the Philippines right now. Uh, my wife, uh, so the Philippines is a wonderful country, but it's also the place where um, the every bad love song goes to die. It's where they invented karaoke, and it was stolen by the Japanese, and everywhere you go. Um, Everywhere you go, there's karaoke. And um, anyway, uh, my wife grew up uh, with a band that I don't like very much uh, called, and some of you might have heard of it, it's called Air Supply. <laughs> How many of you have heard of Air Supply? Yeah. How many of you are fans of Air Supply? Okay, good. Um, so anyway, so um, I found myself... Um, tagging along at an air supply concert. So this is the this is called ululating to air supply. She of the karaoke tribe from the archipelago of the interminable love song, where Karen Carpenter never goes out of style, has not asked me to prove my love. But when she says she wants to go with her Filipina emigre friends to Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque, Iowa, to see Air Supply live in concert, I seize this as an opportunity after 12 years of marriage akin to a renewal of vows and as close to sacrificing my life for her as I'm ever going to get. It's a card I will hold in reserve. Yes, I cheated on you with your best friend, but don't forget I went to see Air Supply live with you at Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque. Hard work, marriage. You remember Air Supply and what they sang? Of course you do. That song. And the one that sounded just like it. And that other one, too. Yeah, those. It's, if I seem as enthusiastic about the concert as a zombie at a baby shower, then that's twice as enthusiastic as I mean to seem. <laughs> I embarrass easily. I'm overly self-conscious, and when someone does something really stupid around me, such as wearing a fake deer head to get attention, as I saw recently on a commuter flight, I feel that it's me wearing that deer head. <laughs> the same holds true at an air supply concert. 
I feel as though it's me belting out stale lyrics along with the audience. But it's not me. It's Margie. She is a loyal soul who loves without apology or embarrassment. I did not grow up listening to Air Supply, and so I don't see what, the, what she sees performing on stage. I see a man bedecked with a rhombus of white hair and a tag-sail Sergeant Pepper jacket, and his taller partner Russell, likewise white-haired, with a microphone wrapped from ear to mouth, almost retro, it's so conspicuous. The room, including the stage and bar, is only about half the size in a, of an Olympic swimming pool. Does Russell need a microphone at all? It's great to be back in your lovely state, Russell tells the crowd of 150 at most. Margie and I sit in folding chairs near the front of the stage. Everyone says that, don't they? And it's true that it feels like a line, but he has to say it, I guess. It's part of the package, though he conspicuously left off the name of the state it's so great to be back in. Is he thinking Idaho? No, uh, Ohio? I had it a second ago. Guitar, guitar strung around his neck, he tries to make a connection with the chattering crowd. Do you ever feel you need to go someplace alone, he asks. I need that. In my house, I have places that no one knows about, not even me. A sanctuary. He laughs and turns to the band of four young men behind him who seem awake enough to give him courtesy laughs in return. I do like his sense of irony. He has my respect for that. Maybe he couldn't care less about his quadrillionth gig. But he has to pretend he cares, while dropping hints that he's not going to take himself too seriously anymore. The other one, Graham, keeps signaling for more applause, talks about this being the kickoff of the world tour. Can you rock it for me, he asks. The people beside Margie can't rock it for him or anyone. <laughs> Double-wide Iowans, nodding slightly as though sitting on the tarmac waiting for their plane to be de-iced. And Margie asks to change places with me. Graham has noticed three empty seats in the front row. Empty seats bother him, and he wants them filled immediately. Did they leave? Were they never filled? Margie's Filipina friends closer to the stage than she dashed to fill them. I don't believe we fall in love, Russell says as smoke billows. I believe love falls into us. Write that down, guys. Is he Shakespeare, someone near me asks? The audience is not full of dewy teens. They've been through it all, and so they joke about how incredibly large that woman is, the one who's every woman in the world to me. They want to drink a beer, maybe play the slots. It's an alliance between half the audience and Big Russell, the ironist. The other half of the audience, which includes Margie and her Filipina friends, are in alliance with Graham. They believe that love has fallen into them, that love will lift them up on stage. Graham and Russell cycle through their hits, which now that they're singing them are familiar even to me. You are my lady, lost in love, and then Russell sings a new composition called Everywhere, the basic idea of which seems to be that someone, you, is everywhere. Everywhere the singer goes, everywhere the singer imagines, in his heart, and most likely in his soul, although his soul isn't explicitly mentioned in the lyrics. He confides in the way that someone confides in a bunch of people one doesn't know, that he likes to sit on the porch and look at the mountains, wait for something to happen. If something doesn't happen, he drinks a bottle of wine. Then something happens. Next song, he drops into the audience like a paratrooper with a shattered knee. He's everywhere, a wag behind me says. 
But he's singing one of his big hits. I know he is, though I have no idea what it's called. It's that big one, that big hit, like the other ones. Not like Everywhere, which has as much of a chance of becoming a hit now as The Farmer and the Dell. But for him, his career marches on. There's nothing stopping him, not even his advancing age. I asked Margie the name of the song. She's waving to him. She's been waving to him the entire concert. You're every woman in the world to me, she rattles off. Again, I ask? No, she says, acknowledging her mistake, but also acknowledging that I'm a pest by waving her hand at me, not in the same way she waves it at Big Russell. It's Here I Am, which sounds kind of like every other song in the world to me. Oh my, Graham is wading into the audience too and has kissed a woman full on the lips. Get out the nitro tablets. He leads the audience in an a cappella version of Here I Am. The concert is going karaoke. Someone ululates. Do people ululate at air supply concerts? The lighters come out, both real and virtual. In the afterglow of the concert, Margie shyly asks if I'd mind waiting while she stands in line for an air supply t-shirt. The shirt costs $45. But on the bright side, you get a CD of their new music, which presumably includes everywhere and everything and maybe even everybody and you are my lost in love lady slash woman and here I am to me. Sure, I say, go ahead, I'll play the slots. And I say it without any sense of irony or cynicism. I mean, she is my lady. While she's standing in line for the ephemera so meaningful to her to have it signed, to look into their eyes and see a connection, I put $5 in one of the penny slots in the casino, twice the size of the performance area, and I start to hum, all out of love. Because there's a part of my brain that, despite all the other parts, is sentimental and earnest and believes that all you have to do is believe. It's not love that falls into me, but money from this slot machine. Within minutes, I've won nearly $300, more than enough to repay myself for the tickets, for dinner, for the gas, for her exorbitant T-shirt. When Margie comes by to collect me, I belt out a bar of one of Air Supply's famous songs, hoping she believes it's true. Thanks for that, Robin. The only way I can follow that is if I catch on fire. <laughs> Where's the fire extinguisher? It's gone. Okay. Okay. I'm okay. They found the fire extinguisher. Um, I'm going to read from something new. It's not funny at all. I'm really sorry. It does, it does have, I promised that it had sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it does. Um, woo! woo. <laughs> and um, this is, people who have known me for a few years probably think I'm not writing a novel because I haven't finished it, but I'm, um, I'm writing a final version of it, and I'm adding some sex and some drugs <laughs> and some rock and roll, and... Um, so this is a story of a young woman named Maddie who um, uh, grew up in Stinson Beach, north of San Francisco. I don't know if you guys know where that is, up by the Point Reyes. Um, she has a house with her mother above the beach. 
And the book opens when she's living in Montana when she's about 10 years older. In this part, she's 15. And something happens, and she's trying to uh, replay in her mind um, the two summers in which she lost her mother. I don't know if that might help, and it might not. Okay, just a second. I've forgotten, <clears throat> I've forgotten more than I knew. I've replaced that summer with fragments. The best I can do is lay it all out in an order that makes sense. There is no true story. I remember the moon falling into the cypresses, the branches nodded and blacker than ever, the sea air spreading across the bedroom floor. I remember digging my hands into the bowl of ash in the fire pit, finding no heat, hefting the weightless remains. My breath scattered the gray into the morning, then driftwood logs on the beach, a white pelican falling from a height, stabbing a wave, and dust on the living room surfaces. It all shapes my mother. I did not stop loving her. I don't believe she stopped loving me, even if I was troubled. We could have left that coast. We could have settled inland. But I know you can't leave. I can't see anything here. Each day, she put out calls for people, and they came. She spent and spent until there was no room in the pantry. She didn't ask me to feed anyone, to light the fires, to sit and listen. When I couldn't take the night in dead-end lanes and shut down town any longer, I dragged myself home, and she pretended not to notice. Over the next week, as absent as I made myself, still I saw enough. I don't know if the times had changed or something had been knocked loose. People scooped savruga with a coke spoon. I saw sunlit. I saw sunset Klieg light the window, blinding all detail, sinking a group into silhouette tangles. I remember that my mother had. I. <laughs> Mom. <clears throat> I I guess that my mother had put them all up to it, that a lookout had watched for my return, and then that all played their assigned roles. But why would she, and why would they? The, uh, uh, let's see, the music never made it through an entire album Something be, before something else slid in, changed the rhythm, pierced the drums. I shut my bedroom door, stuffed a pillow along the bottom gap to block the light and noise. I heard a man and woman pressed against the door, whispers, theories, the jam, and hinges holding against their weight. You in there, they said. Let us know if we can bother you. But I can't be remembering that correctly. I must have heard, let us know if we're bothering you. I tried to send them away. I knocked on the door. I asked, knew that if I opened the door, they'd fall in on me. I waited for them to leave, for silence in the hall, hard to distinguish the closeness of sounds with the downstairs booming. But I took a chance. I don't know where I was headed. The upstairs hall was bright, and for a moment I nearly turned back to my own windows and view and the stars, but I kept going. My mother's bedroom was lit, empty, the bed nearly stripped of covers and sheets, all melting toward the floor. In the living room, my mother curled in the window seat, brow to the pane. She might have been asleep. I, I pushed through, touched her. She tried to wave me off with an arm twisted behind her back, but I kept at her, and she rolled slightly, looked up at me. Her lips twitched and rippled. Her eyes seemed to focus all around me. She rolled away. I turned to the room. 
I saw much more than I remember. It was not a lesson learned, or I don't know what the lesson was. A shirtless man on the hearth, a bare woman on his lap, too much fuel in the fire. The heat should have singed the fine hairs on his shoulders. I crossed the hall to the office. On the desk sat a plastic bottle that held three green gelatin capsules. A piece of brown paper tape circled the bottle marked with the word tonight. I tipped a capsule from the bottle, slid its halves open, twisted the shells, shells to empty the contents onto the blotter, a brownish powder, slightly gritty, organic. I wet a finger, touched the powder, tasted it. It was bitter, simply bitter. It drew saliva to my tongue. I looked across the hall into the living room. The music changed. Someone unscrewed a light bulb, dropped the hot glass to the floor, shatters of white as she blew on her fingertips. I collected more of the powder, tasted it, kept trying to locate that taste somewhere in my memory. It was not something I knew, not something I would ever know. I blew the last scraps of the powder away. The empty gelatin shells skittered and fell onto the swirls of the rug. I sat at the desk for a while. could have been an hour or two or a few minutes <clears throat> and waited. In a drawer, I found Mr. Domes's files, each marked with a year, and I leafed through the papers, saw his small, neat hand, the little check marks, the way he expressed our income and debts. We were comfortable. We could sit back. Entries for housekeeping, plumbing, repairs, my high school tuition, the van service inland. <clears throat> Excuse me. Large sums. I had never asked. It was our life. It seemed that we could outlast whatever came down from the hills or up from the sea. I left the office, went to the front door, opened and closed it a few times to hear the click of the latch into the strike plate. I could feel that sound in my hands. I could feel the density of the wood. Seemed that the door had come from some other world, a hostel, chapel, shrine. I studied the wood, pressed my ear to it, let my sight dig beneath its surface. I saw the wood's structure, saw the old wood smoke embedded, pollen caught the oil of a million hands. The tree's life had been preserved here. The tree's height in the forest, the sounds of a logging road, and the sawmill, the cut of the panels, all to keep us safe. I set the lock, returned to the center of the house. Each corner, ceiling to floor, caught a bit of our life. I ran a finger down the crease, tested the chalky plaster, knew it held the evidence of our years, our exhalations, and skin. I had known no other house. I wouldn't leave. I knew I'd stay. In the kitchen, I stood at the window and watched the fire on the terrace. The guests danced male to ma dancing male to male, male to female, or alone. The firelight shimmered off them as if the fire held them and not the night. The thought of leaving, of walking away, the loss of this life, the loss of my mother, turned me from the window, and for a long time I heaved into the sink, brought up nothing but bile. I couldn't remember what I'd eaten that day or if I'd eaten at all. Couldn't tell why I was nauseated besides fear. I drank a glass of cold water, washed my face, rapped at the countertop with my knuckles. It seemed my bones would break. With each strike, the stone wavered. Waves expanded. I jumped back. Upstairs, I entered my room, closed the door. The hall light leaked from the crack. That, that light, a solid layer. It flowed much more slowly than light should. 
The leading edge of the flood caught the rug, the blanket chest, wicked up the bedposts, heated it all, drew it all, echoed back to me what I thought I'd seen before but hadn't actually seen, not like this. I discovered a sound to light on wood, light on fabric, a sound like the pinging of synapses, the whine of thought. I was at the bottom corner of the bed, and then I wasn't sure at all, had to have made a wrong turn, the sheets wadded at the foot, and two bodies. At the window, I tested the view, slid the window up, took a handful of night mist, and held it to my nostrils and mouth. That was the taste. I knew where I was. So I turned to the bed again and watched. He was above her, his hands on her wrists, arms spread in equal angles. I could feel the weight of him borne down through his bones to her smaller bones. I knew what I saw, but I hadn't known that skin could catch light and heat that way, could gather warm blue in the hollow of the man's back and the dimple at the base of the woman's neck. I thought that I approached, my thighs against the mattress, thought that I turned and landed my butt on the bed, tipped my weight up gradually until I was on the bed, lay back even more gradually, unsure how I was balanced or why I wasn't falling, why they hadn't noticed me. They shifted. I was among them, between. Scratchy, musk, my own skin, my own oil in the sheets, but I hadn't approached. I knew I hadn't. I was out in the hall, down to the end, and for a long time I was in the musty storage space, wedged among stacks of mildewed boxes, winter coats with empty arms, pottery, ornaments, my mother's dolls and my own dolls, plastic tubs of Andean yarn. Crouched on the plywood floor, even without light, I saw the weight and margins of everything we'd hidden, saw the delicate etched fingerprints where we'd touched, the color we'd left behind, each color a day or distance or time. I didn't know how to get beyond that brown powder, didn't know if I would. My torso was hollow, my limbs were wire. I tugged a coat down from overhead, let it envelop me. The scent of cigarettes, jet fuel, French coffee, leather. The coat held my heart and blood. Red light strobed on the silk lining. Somewhere behind me there must have been a lantern. I smelled kerosene, and the flame shone through me. It was not my heart that strobed. It was the unsteady flame around my heart. And I knew then that the lantern was consuming the air in the room, and the flame was smoking with fumes, and I held my breath and held it, and held. It was no effort to sit without air, to watch the projection of my heart, to wait. It was no effort to hide. I could not think of anything else. I've carried that space with me, however long that night took, however time expanded. I wish I had a precise record of it. Sometimes I think I was in a box that would never open, and that box saved me from what I might have done. I pulled up my shirt, lowered my shorts, touched and tasted my skin. Each point of pressure resonated with light and faded. There was nothing on me, nothing new, nothing I didn't know. Whatever I'd seen in my bed, it had not happened to me. I could watch the world and live in the world and not let it touch me. That storage room, a dark box suspended high in a structure at the edge of a continent or cut loose in a drift across miles of sea and mountain, I've never known how far I traveled that night. The world can disappear. I know that's true. Time is not constant. Gravity has no power, not if you can't distinguish up from down. Always, ever since, I'm watching my heart contract, hearing it like some sort of 
pul- pulmonary tin- tinnitus, some sort of echo propelling me like a breeze. Always I'm crouched beneath the weight of my mother's winter coat. At dawn, I was down on the beach, somehow expelled from that small space, though I couldn't remember the passage. I sat on the cool, dark sand and watched the water wick into my shorts, watched the, sh- the roll of small particles as the waves sheared toward me. I made a dam with my palm and scooped the water, examined the bits of cast-off life in suspension. I drank from my palm. The water didn't quench me. It made me thirstier. I spit and tried again. Whatever I thought of my birthright on that coast, whatever I'd thought of my birthright on that coast, the ocean water wasn't lifeblood, not in any real way, wasn't a primordial soup that would cradle a new life for me. I needed fresh water. I needed to wash the salt from my cells. Excuse me, really happy to read with Robin and with Bill. I confess, I really want to tell you about my embarrassing encounter with Yehuda Amakai, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, last night, I had the amazing privilege of walking across the Brooklyn Bridge with about 350 people and stopping along our way and reading some of the great poems of New York. So, um, B.J. Sashadri, Thomas Lux, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, Tom, uh, several other poets who were all reading these poems. And at the very end of the walk, I got to read Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which is like the great American poem of, of moving across and going to the other side. So I feel sort of vibrating and saturated with um, urban poems. And I thought, therefore, I'll read a couple of those. Um, and this one, it, it would be useful for you to know what qigong is, which is um, this kind of uh, Chinese massage where you get pushed really hard on various points on your body, which is supposed to unblock your qi, your life force, so that it can flow more freely. And, and you'll feel better. So uh, around New York City, there are qigong powers tucked in here and there. Here's a visit to one of them. It's called Theory of Marriage. I have a slight thrumming aura of backache. So Marie, we've met for a late lunch before a movie at a Greek place in the West Village, says what you need is the Qigong parlor. So we take a cab to a vague block between Soho and Chinatown. Marie has to look to find it. And once she spotted the flight of scarlet stairs leading down from the street, she leaves us at the door, benevolently, as if to say, here, my dears, is the gift I've led you to. We're ushered into a long room, bright as a nail salon. Various citizens, entirely dressed but for coat and shoes, prone upon many tables, as we are in a moment, Paul an aisle away from me. His masseur's an intense, strapping man. Mine, an intense, compact woman, who asks what sort of treatment I require, and soon pushes against various points along my spine. Knots of tension loosening, and soon I'm fading under the specific pressure of touch. No more bright chamber full of sore New Yorkers. No more street noise, shoppers. No more various and polyphonic expressions of desire. No desire, really. Just press and release here and here. Awareness moving from one instant to the next. Is this the cure for subjectivity to diminish to a singular point of attention? 
Everything but this floated away. All too soon, it's over. And the masseuse says, your friend, not done. You want to do more? Sure, I say. Feet, she says. Almost before I've nodded, we're off. The pushing, exploring regions that do not seem to exist until pressed. And then the self's a glass fishbowl, dropped from some great height, falling slowly at ease, shattering without a sound. And just as the weightless fish go fantailing free, I'm aware that Paul is crying, ow! And then I hear his masseur say, your friend, not done. You want more? (laughs) And he must think he may as well, since I am still releasing the contained sounds of one pushed into new life until my treatment comes to an end and the woman says, friend, not done. (laughs) We do head? And as a resistance I didn't know was there is banished, I am dimly aware that the masseur has climbed onto Paul's back. Paul is crying, oh, ow, and just as I am vanishing again into the heaven of rubbed temples, where no city exists except the one in which the skull produces a repetitive golden music, somewhere far away, Paul's masseur says, your friend. In this way, we spend a small but substantive fortune. A sum which would have been even greater had I not cried out as my masseuse left my hands and wrists and prepared to commence elsewhere. Stop! Enough! No! To Paul's huge relief, since he thought I must want to continue. And therefore he must persist while I am persisting, even though he was in pain, strong-armed by his assailant. And I thought he wanted to go on. And therefore I must endure the bliss that had become an exhaustion. And we walked out onto the street, relieved, late for the movies, Paul limping a little, my backache gone. I didn't know when I wrote that that it was a breakup poem, but uh, it became absolutely clear to me a little bit later. Our poems know more than we do, you know? So, um, across the river from Manhattan in Jersey City is a particularly uh, sort of battered, gritty outpost of New York, Um, although people in New Jersey would bristle at me saying it was an outpost of New York. No way, you know? But it seems that to me. And one morning, very early freezing winter morning, I was driving along, and I came upon a beauty parlor, which had recently been set on fire. I mean, very recently. There was a little flame licking out the window. The sirens were going. There was nobody there. I I thought about what to do, and I left. Uh, But I couldn't stop thinking about it. That... that... Okay, I'm getting bigger. Um, Can you hear me? (laughs) That image of the you know, this broken um, sort of house of aspiration, you know, that that was not going to be making anybody look good anymore, if indeed it ever did, uh, was in trouble. So as I kept thinking about it, I I found a line uh, stuck in in my head, which was, um, which you'll hear, it's the repeated line in this poem, which borrows its form from uh, the house that Jack built or uh, Elizabeth Bishop's poem, A Visit to Bedlam, where... Every stanza is one line longer than the one before, and every stanza ends with a version of the same line. So you can hear this stack up, I hope. It's called House of Beauty. In Jersey City, on Tonnelly Avenue, the House of Beauty is burning. On a Sunday morning in January, under the chilly shadow of the Pulaski Skyway, the House of Beauty is burning. Who lobbed the fire bottle? through the glass, in among the creams and thrones, the helmets and clippers and combs, who set the house of beauty burning? In the dark recess beside the sink, where heads lay back to be laved under the perfected heads, rode along the walls, 
the hopeful photographs of possibility darken now that the house of beauty is burning. The Skyway beetles in the ringing cold, trestle arcing the steel river and warehouses, truck lots and Indian groceries, a new plume of smoke joining the others. Billow of dark thought rising from the broken forehead of the House of Beauty. An emission almost too small to notice just now. Alarm still ringing. The flames new launched on their project of ruining an effort at pleasure. Glass jutting like cracked ice in the window frame. No one inside. The fire department on the way. All things by nature, wrote Virgil, are ready to get worse. No surprise, then, that the House of Beauty is burning. (laughs) Though whatever happens, however far these fires proceed, producing history to powder, whatever the House of Beauty made is untouchable now. Nothing can undo so many heads made lovely or at least acceptable. So much shapelessness given what are called permanence, though nothing holds a fixed form. Bring on the flames. What does it matter if the house is burning? Propose a new beauty, perennially unhoused, neither the lost things nor the fire itself, but the objects in their dresses of disaster. Anything clothed in its own passage. Padded vinyl chair burst into smoky tongues. Lucite helmet sagged to a new version of its dome. Our black bridge, a charred rainbow on iron legs, two ruby eyes glowering from its crown. If beauty is burning. What could you save? The House of Beauty is a house of flames. Thank you. Um, Is there a bottle of water in the house, by any chance? Back there somewhere? While I'm waiting for that to appear, I will tell you that a while later, I drove past the House of Beauty, and they apparently collected the insurance money. Because now it's a big blazing sun. House of Beauty, you know, the spotlights and thing lights. And they are ready to go. Um, and, and, okay. Well, I, I was going, I forgot to say, too, um, I'm going to read two more poems. <laughs> that was so dead on. But I'm just going to read one more poem. But I'm not going to start it until the water appears. So uh, let's see. What, what, what else can I tell you about? Um, this, this last poem um, is new and has to do with um, the deep pleasure we take in routine, in, in part. You know, even if you're um, a person who, who relishes change, you know, who, uh, an artist perhaps who tries to stay open to the new, there's something about routine and repetition that I think makes us feel safe, um, that, you know, in a way protects the inner life. Like if, if you take the same path, to work every day, or you eat the same thing for breakfast, you're somehow freed to be uh, more in your daydream life, you know, because you don't have to think about what you're doing. And so I told you that, and now, ha, ah, thank you, you are a gem. Okay, so uh, this new poem, for reasons which will become apparent to you, is called This Your Home Now. This, your home now. For years, I went to the Peruvian barbers on 18th Street. Comforting, welcome, the full coat rack, three chairs held by three barbers, eldest by the window, the middle one, a slight fellow who spoke an oddly feminine Spanish, the youngest, last, red-haired, self-consciously masculine, and in each of the mirrors, their children's photos, smutty cartoons, postcards from Machu Picchu. I was happy in any chair. 
though I like best the touch of the eldest, who'd rest his hand against my neck in a thoughtless, confident way. Ten years, maybe. One day, the powdery blue steel shutters pulled down over the window and door, not to be raised again. They'd lost their lease. Do camp for Washington Heights? I didn't know how at a loss I'd feel. What little hair I have requires neither art nor science. But this haze around what I'd like to think the sculptural presence of my skull means to me intensely. Two haircuts on 7th, one in Dublin, nothing right. Then I hear my friend Marie laughing over my shoulder saying, in your poems there's always a then. And I think, is it a poem without a then? (laughs) Dull early winter, back on 18th, just past the post office, up spiraling red in a cylinder of glass, just below the line of the sidewalk, a new sign, Willie's Barbershop. <laughs> the power fail. <laughs> okay. Luckily for us, there is a paper copy of this poem in my lap. <laughs> How about that, huh? Ah. Which is kind of amazing. That's good. So uh, there's a little break in the poem here. Well... I'm discovering this barbershop miraculously has appeared, where I was really feeling at sea. And just below the line of the sidewalk, a new sign: Willie's Barbershop. Dark hallway, glass door, and there's presumably Willie. When I tell him I used to go down the street, he says in an inscrutable accent, This you're a home now. Puts me in a chair, asks me what I want, and soon he's clipping and singing with the radio. That's when I notice Willie's walls. Though he's been here all the week, spangled with images hung in barbershops since the beginning of time. Lounge singers, near celebrities, random boxers, Italian boys, Puerto Rican, caught in the hour of their beauty, though they'd scowl at the word. Frank Sinatra, scribbling love to Willie. Somebody at the bat, cheering victors over a trophy, one for what? Frames already dusty, at slight angles. Here, it is clear, forever. Are barbershops like aspens, each sprung from a common root, 10,000 years old? Sons of one father, holding up fighters and starlets to keep at bay the tenderness of their hearts. Willie, our neutral guardian, defies time. His chair, our ferry boat. And we go down into the trance of touch and the clipper's skull buzz drone, singing cranial nerves in the direction of peace. And so I understand that in the endless hallway, leading into the back of this nothing building on 18th Street, the men I have outlived await their turns. The fevered and wasted whose mothers and lovers scattered their ashes and gave away their clothes. Twenty years, and their names tumble into a numb well. Though in truth I have not forgotten one of you, may I never forget one of you. Layers of men, compressed in their no longer breathing ranks. Willie, I have not lived well in my grief for them. I have lugged this weight from place to place as though it were mine to account for. And today I sit in your good chair. In the sixth decade of my life, and if your back door is the threshold to the kingdom of the lost, yours is a good, steady hand on my shoulder. Go down into the still waters of this chair, and you come up refreshed, ready to face the avenue. Maybe I do believe we will not be left comfortless, that after everything comes tumbling down, or you tear it down, and stumble in the Shadow Valley trenches of the moon, there's still a decent chance at, well, a barbershop, salsa on the radio. 
the instruments of renewal wielded effortlessly. And who'd have thought for you? Willie, if he is Willie, fusses much longer over my head than my head merits, which allows me to be grateful without qualification. Maybe I could be a little satisfied. There's a man who loves me, our dogs, 10 or 20 more good years if I'm a bit careful. That's what I haven't written. It's sunny out, though cold. After I tip Willie, I'm going down to Jane Street, to a coffee shop I like, and then I'm going to write this poem. Then... You guys are great. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.